welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story. Together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're featuring guitarist Steve Masakowski. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Welcome, everybody, to episode 45 of the High Action Podcast. Uh, I've got John Storr here, I've got Perry Smith here, and I kind of just want to ask these guys what they did this this 4th of July holiday weekend. Um, how about you, Perry? Um, yeah, I had a gig, and then yesterday, I mean for the 4th, I did a ton of barbecuing at a friend's place, just ate a bunch of food, and watched some illegal fireworks go off throughout Brooklyn. Uh, but also did a lot of practicing, and, and you guys will be happy to know I'm I'm back to the blue chip jazz guitar pick large 40 now. Huh. What were you and using earlier? You got off the was, blue chip train? I was I was uh, kind of getting off the blue chip train, and I was going down to the, the smaller one that was the 40, like the jazz 40 or whatever. But I like this bigger pick, you know? Like, I think it's cool. I, I think it's kind of getting the sound that I want. So, you know me, I'm always trying to search for that perfect tone and that perfect feel. Do you feel with the sharp picks? I feel if the pick is too sharp, I, I can't have a lot of long lines. Like, I feel like my the angle of the pick runs out of, like, sustain whereas if the pick's a little rounder you can kind of your lines can go a little longer that's what i've been feeling lately hmm i don't know if i don't know if i've ever equated it to that but yeah certainly our guest today on the podcast steve masakowski he had a pretty cool setup for his uh right hand technique he would have something to say he innovated um a whole type of pick thing that mounts on your thumb and he actually slides it up so that he can then finger pick slides it back down and he actually talks about all that so yes that's a great segue perry i'm gonna i'm gonna piggyback off that i helped you for once we got to interview steve masakowski a wonderful wonderful guitarist located in new orleans and something about him that really stood out to me is especially in the in the 70s and 80s he was really innovative on the technological side of music and adapting guitar into new types of electronics, you know, be it with synthesizers or be it with literally wiring up keys on a neck and then using a telephone cable to wire that in to a Moog, right? Yeah. And he had a great point he brought up where he was talking about trying to keep up with the volume and intensity of a sax player, for example. Oh man, I know. And yeah. as a guitar player, that can be hard to do. And we've all experienced that in in different scenarios. And John, what do you think, you know, primarily playing a hollow body, whether it's the L5 or the Marquion, how do you get your intensity and keep up with that after like a burning alto solo? Yeah, well, um, it, it's more, uh, well, it's it's more to me about having like a flow with the instrument. You know, it's funny over the years, I don't feel a lot of resistance anymore with the arch top or the telly or the 335, just be able to, in terms of just sheer speed and, and picking too. 
everything feels pretty similar. But I remember early on in college feeling like, oh man, I really need like a 335 to play this kind of solo. And I don't know, maybe it's just because I've played my boxes so much. And then this past year, breaking in a brand new Fender guitar, the, the learning curve is so much shallower on that guitar. You just, the minute you get it in your hand, you get it set up, you're just, just blazing on that thing. So yeah, I, that's been one of the one of the things that I've enjoyed about kind of maturing as a guitarist is everything kind of um, being a little bit more translatable across all the different kinds of instruments in that mm-hmm. in a case like that, like you're mentioning. They call them blazing saddles story. Um, <laughs> wow. So, so you know, and and Perry, before I ask your opinion, something that's made a big difference for me is, of course, what we've been talking a lot about is the way you EQ your instrument to the specific environment, you know, when yeah. we're alone in our room, <clears throat> we'll likely EQ our guitar a lot different. Might, maybe it'll have more low end. Maybe it just has this big, beautiful sustain, but in a live setting, if you were to just take that sound and duplicate that in your room, you might think, oh, I don't really like the sound. It sounds kind of like thin and boxy, but that really cuts through and allows you to like clearly have your little sonic zone in the band mix live. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the ongoing conversation for us. It's like how to make the arch top work in as many ways as possible. And what I keep coming back to is you just have to have a multitude of techniques for mm-hmm. different volumes, kind of different types of tones that you might need from the arch top. You know, whether you can have a more throaty tone or you need to have a more punchy tone, um, brighter, darker, louder, quieter, more acoustic, more electric. There's all different things you can do in terms of just like where you pick, how heavy you pick, the kind of pick you use, whether you're using the pick at all, mm-hmm. or just fingers. It's like having a multitude of techniques is, I think, the way you can survive on the archtop in as many ways as possible. And, and again, back to Steve Masakowski, he's the guy that figured it out on his instrument, and uh, it was just awesome to get him on this podcast, so... It was super great. This is definitely one of my favorite episodes. Steve is really cool. Highly recommend you check out any of his albums that are up in the Cosmos streaming available, or even better, go buy some of his albums. So some housekeeping before we send you in to listen. Subscribe to us on Patreon. Check out what we've got going on over there. We're going to be releasing some fun videos that we've been collaborating on. And stay tuned for some live new West Guitar Group shows coming up in August on the West Coast. We're really excited. We've got a lot of new things in the works, and we're really happy to be getting back to live shows, which is where this band belongs. So without further ado, enjoy Steve Masakowski on the High Action Podcast. Okay, today on High Action, we are joined by the magnificent Steve Masakowski, coming to us from New Orleans. Steve, how have you been, man? I've uh, been doing okay, surviving, you know, the, with the madness. <laughs> what, what's, been, uh, what's been changing for you in the last year, year and a half? Not too much, other than the, the fact that all my gigs kind of dried up, you know, and had to, you know, just like everyone else, had to sort of resort to playing online and, you know, doing the Facebook live thing. And, uh, 
other than that, we, you know, I, I didn't succumb too much to the fear and the, and, 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 you know, and the, the stuff that was out there. So, um, you know, in, in a way it reminded me a little bit of like, uh, reminded me a little bit of like hurricane evacuation. I don't know if you've, if you've ever been in a hurricane evacuation, but it's like the day before the hurricane, the streets are kind of empty. Everything's empty. So for a while it was, it was kind of like that, you know, you could drive and there's <laughs> nobody on the road and the restaurants are all kind of empty and stuff, you know, but other than that, yeah, I'm just glad that it's, it seems to be, uh, you know, kind of decrescendoing out, you know, kind of, you know, coming to a close. So I'm curious about, uh, Snug Harbor. How has Snug Harbor been doing through? Yeah, they finally op- reopened uh, on a limited basis. It's funny you should say that because I'm playing a gig tonight associated with Snug. Okay, this is the first I play with a band called the Astral Project, which is a band that it's we're probably the you know the oldest uh, contemporary jazz group in New Orleans. You know, and um, tonight is actually the first gig we're doing since. The lockdowns. So it's almost over a year, maybe a year and three months or whatever. It's the first time we're playing together, you know. But we're playing outdoors across the street from Snug Harbor mm-hmm. uh, in association with a, uh, a club called DBA. And I think Snug is providing the food, or I'm not really sure how it works, but it's. Uh, but uh, they actually Snug actually uh, reopened in, on a limited basis, and uh, Ellis Marcellus was usually the the Friday night mm-hmm. spot, you know, and uh, now his son has been doing it, Jason, and with Ellis's uh, previous band, you know. So I want to give a little background on how I came to know you. Um, I, I first met your daughter, Sasha, mm-hmm. at, at Julian Menard's house concert when she was playing with Ron Eshte. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to Ron Eshte and big shout out to Julian Menard for putting us in touch with you. Yeah. She's a... She's one of the best music patrons in the world, that's for sure. So Absolutely. Absolutely. I was wondering about your connection with Ron Eshte, because he was my teacher in college also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Ronnie, Ronnie was, uh, you know, when I, I, I was taking very early on, this is before I even went to Berkeley College of Music or whatever, I was taking from the, the local guitar guru named Hank Mackey. Mm-hmm. And Hank Mackey uh, taught most all the jazz guitar players in, in New Orleans, but he was very good friends with Ronnie Eshte. And, uh, but Ronnie, you know, when I just started learning how to play the guitar, Ronnie had already left and gone to uh, L.A., you know, so he wasn't living in New Orleans. But every once in a while, he would come back, and it was like, you know, it was he was kind of like the, the the big guru. Hank was just so you know uh, enamored with Ronnie and his playing, and 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 I was also. He was just you know so much more advanced than we were, you know, at the time. You know, so Ronnie was like uh, he was like gold. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it was just great to hear him. I didn't get a chance to see him that much, only when he was passing through town because I think he's from Houma, Louisiana. Okay, and yeah. he would just come and, and visit Hank, and uh, we. We the the place I was studying with Hank was called the World of Strings, so just a little guitar studio, and uh, and then Ronnie would come there and uh, play. We just jam, you know, and uh, we'd all be like in awe of Ronnie's skills. Was he playing seven string back then? No, 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 no. Uh, in fact, I think I'm the first one to start playing seven string. I think Ron, you know, it's at some point. And I have to get my timeline straight, but because I went to Berkeley College of Music, uh, and then while I was at Berkeley, uh, well, let me see how this all turned out. Well, 
let me let me back up for a second mm-hmm. because we had we had a um, we had at the world of well no that's I went to Berkeley and, when, and coming back I, that's where I met Emily Remler mm-hmm. and uh, Emily and I were very close for about three years and uh, and she moved back to New Orleans with me after, after Berkeley but um, I was playing in a lot of the guitar ensembles at Berkeley and uh, writing some you know charts and things like that and. Um, Back in New Orleans at the Hyatt Regency, there was a little jazz club that had opened. And I actually, uh, there's a lot of sort of, a, you know, international stars that played there. But I saw uh, Bucky Pizzarelli. Mm-hmm. He came through and Hank invited him. We had a little guitar ensemble. We would rehearse in the back of the world of strings and just, you know, play charts and things like that. And he invited um, uh, he invited uh, Bucky to our little rehearsal or whatever. And that's the first time I ever heard a seven-string guitar. And since I had started on bass, I actually started on bass guitar, so I was right. always been very uh, in tune to the to the bass at the low end of the instrument or whatever. And I just had blown away by that um, the sound of that 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 seven-string, you know. And I had to get one, you know. <laughs> and I, in fact, the first, my first seven-string was actually a I found a uh, an old electric uh fender 12 string mm-hmm. and i strung it like a seven string just to see if i could play it you know i and, read this i'm know. wondering how you strung a, a, a fender 12 string as a seven i want i want to well know. i just had you know it had all this, it had enough tuning pegs you know and i had to space the strings out accordingly it didn't work great you know but it, w- it just kind of showed me that hmm, yeah i can get into playing this and then when I went back to Berkeley, this is probably like in between semesters or whatever, I went down to New York from Boston and it was in a pawn shop. It was a uh, an old Van Epps uh, Gretsch, a George Van Epps seven string sitting on the wall in a pawn shop. And I bought it for like 250 bucks. And that was my first seven string um, for many years. Uh, so that was probably like, you know, the, the you know, the mid to late or the later seventies, uh, probably like 75, 76 up in there is probably when I got that seven string guitar. And then, uh, and then, you know, just on some of the visits, I think with the Ronnie and stuff like that, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't remember Ronnie playing seven string at that time, but I was, you know, and then um, that was about the time also that um, Lenny bro started playing seven string. Cause Lenny, we were friends with, a friend of mine, Phil Degree, uh, uh, and both of us were very uh, inspired by Lenny Bro. And Phil would try to get him to come to New Orleans every once in a while. And I remember we all bought this um, seven-string um, guitar by Aria. It was a classical seven-string. And uh, Lenny tuned, you know, it was actually meant to have a high string. And I was always, I'd already been playing seven strings, so I tuned it as a low string, you know, but, uh, and we all got those guitars. And I love that guitar today. I still have it, you know, beautiful uh, classical uh, seven string guitar. But, uh, but yeah, Ronnie Estee was always like, he was like the guru, you know, we all looked up to for sure, you know. Yeah, he's a wonderful teacher too. I love that we have that connection. Um, mm-hmm. So we discussed your early years a little bit. Um, now, actually, but, let me back up a little bit. So before you went to Berkeley, you you said you were playing bass when you were younger, but you started getting more into guitar mostly for the purpose of composing, right? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was like uh, probably in my you know mid teens or whatever. I was in a band, sort of a cream band. You know, it's funny because uh, <laughs> cream. You know, uh, 
I was the Jack Bruce, and my, this friend of mine was into Eric Clapton. I wasn't even into the guitar at all at that time, you know. But um, and um, but it, it was an introduction for me into jazz and improvisation because I remember they they played this uh, really long version. I think it was a live version of Spoonful when they did this fifteen minute. Uh, long song, you know, and I remember just like sitting down trying to figure out everything that Jack Bruce did during that. It, t- it took me months, you know, and figured it out. And then we tried to get together as a trio and see if we could reenact it and never, it never came out. And it never occurred to me until later that, hey, man, they're just improvising. They're just making this stuff up on the spot. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sitting all, you know, spending all my time trying to learn this stuff, but it was good for my ears for sure. But uh, yeah, so I, I, I started playing bass. And then as I started kind of progress out of uh, rock and started getting a little more actually it was the guitar player um david radlauer he told me we were talking about guitar players and he said who's the best guitar player I've ever heard and he says this guy larry coriel and he's he had a record um the spaces record <coughs> and he lent me that record and um yeah i was just blown away by that so larry larry was kind of like my first introduction i would say to uh jazz guitar at least at that at that age and uh i i um i, I listened a lot to larry coriel and tried to transcribe you know everything i could by him you know but uh but yeah i would say up until my mid-20s i'd say probably i was doing more gigs on bass than i was on guitar right you know but i i did get into uh guitar because i wanted to compose and i wanted to learn chords and that's what led me to hank mackey i, I guess i get some People ask me who well, we should go to to study, you know, theory or whatever, and it led me to Hank Mackey. And of course, you know, Hank just kind of totally um, put me straight on chords. I thought <laughs> I remember coming to him and I had played this one chord, and it was a you know a C major seven six nine chord or whatever. What that was this chord? I thought I invented that chord, and Hank said, "Oh no, that's this." And I said, "Oh, not yeah." I thought I invented that chord. <laughs> So it was a reinventing the wheel. <clears throat> so tell us a little bit about when you came back from Berkeley, when you came back to New Orleans. Um, yeah. And at that time, you founded a group called Foreplay, correct? Yeah. And that was, um, that was with Emily Rimler. I met Emily um, in, at Berkeley. And, uh, you know, she moved back, and we, we lived together about three years in, in New Orleans. And we wanted to form a group mm-hmm. uh, where we could both feature ourselves and it was called foreplay f-o-u-r-p-l-a-y which is way before the now the there is another there's a band called foreplay I, I, you know but it was just uh emily and i and a bass player and a drummer uh ray franson was on drums and uh john gillis was on bass and um you know that was the that was the time when i started trying to like compose some songs for the band and things like that, you know, but yeah, that was, that was, uh, I think we even played one of the early, uh, New Orleans jazz and heritage festivals, you know, when it was very in its infant infancy. And in the late seventies, you became pretty active in innovating some technological things with instruments. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I was very much into electronic music, even though at that time the technology was very, very limiting, you know, and um, and I was leading up to my first record that I ever did, which was called Mars, but I invented this thing called the guitar. I was I was really frustrated because I, you know, I was playing with all these great um, saxophone players or whatever, where they scream on the saxophone or whatever. I, I just I just felt like I wish I could do that on the guitar, you know, and it's just the guitar is just too limiting, you know. So I actually built this instrument called a, 
a keytar and um it's basically and it's a seven string keytar by the way but it's right. it's basically just a bunch of buttons that i got from radio shack and put it together in an array on on a guitar and i hardwired it to a moog polyphonic synthesizer and that was before midi there was no midi instruments at that time so you couldn't plug into whatever and there was no common protocol and uh yeah i used that and uh it was pretty crude and but i could use like the you know the the, the pitch wheel i could i could play it with one hand i didn't have to pick it and i could use the right hand to uh manipulate the uh you know all the controls and things like that you know and uh, I used to mount it on my... my um, I saw this. I saw this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a double-neck guitar. It was really heavy, you know. It was like I did, that didn't last for a it long time. It was like arch top, my right? My neck started to suffer. Like you were playing an arch top and then mounted this second neck on top. Right. Yeah, that was actually that was actually my original seven string guitar, which was the Gretsch, and I just figured I figured out a way that I could just mount it on top with a bracket or whatever, you know. And and the cable was a was a telephone cable that it, they used to use. So the, you know, the cable had like 50 wires in it. So I had to like hand solder every one of those, those uh, notes. <laughs> wow. Now for the but, listeners, cause I did a little research on this. Now when I type in keytar, mm-hmm. I see like a Yamaha keyboard, her right. Hancock type thing. Um, right. Somewhere I read that it was also called a Z-tar. Is that correct? No, the Z-tar was a guy that, you know, I had, I had been trying to, I had been trying to perfect it. I started working on another prototype. Um, and, you know, for me, with limited resources and not knowing what the hell I was doing or whatever, uh, you know, I, I kind of gave up on it after a while. And then th- this guy, the Z-Tar guy, actually, he actually, con- you know, actually contacted him because he was working on something that was very similar to what, what I had already built, you know. And, um, you know, I told him some things I thought it should have, you know, like the right hand mechanism should have like a drum pad, you know, things like that or whatever, you know. And so he he took it to the next level. And and, and um, unfortunately, I've never actually played one of his instruments. You know, I think at that time I was started getting away from the uh, I was started getting into other synthesizers. Like I got a Synthax and I had the, the early Yamaha guitar synthesizer. And then, you know, of course, uh, the Roland mm-hmm. stuff, you know, I was experimenting with other other things um so for me it wasn't so much about only pursuing that it was more of a musical thing and so i just sort of branched off into other stuff but he really took it to a a different level for sure now i'm curious did your design have strings on it because i know the Mm z-tar has the buttons and strings Mm -hmm. no was yours just buttons no had no strings i should have it around here somewhere oh man if you do we'd love to see it I don't think it's sick. Can wow. you see this? Wow, so that, wow. this is the yeah. original one. Yeah. That's the original keytar. <laughs> Man, that is so cool. Yeah, it's the, and it still works. You know, well, you know, I don't have it set up, but, you know, this is just the controller, right? So yes. the, the synthesizer, uh, and, you know, the synthesizer, the Moog synthesizer has been through multiple hurricanes. And, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's like 1970s technology, a Moog uh-huh. synthesizer, and I had it. Rebuilt because this is the only thing it'll work with, right? Because it has this, it has this connector on the on the on the back here. It's like a telephone connector, and uh, but you can see how it's all, you know, wow. it's actually seven strings, you know, and I could just play it, you know, like like this, you know. Wow. Uh, so anyway, it's it's it, like I said, it's it's crude, but for my purposes, it was working, and you know, I I composed. Um, you know, a few songs using the keytar uh, because 
the thing that's interesting about the guitar is because each note is independent. You know, like if I played, if I played a like a like if I play a C thirteen chord, a G thirteen chord, whatever, it's seeing this note, it's seeing it's seeing the B flat, it's seeing B natural, it's seeing D, it's seeing E. You know, so this is actually a, a one, two, three, four, five. It's a six note chord, even though I'm only using four strings, That's because cool. each each note is completely independent. Because you know, on a on a stringed instrument, you can only play one note per string, right? So uh, I, I came up with had some really cool. There was a there was a song I wrote called Stepping Stone um, that I played on you know, my uh, the first Blue Note record. Yeah, yeah. But um, and that one actually you know used the guitar wrote wrote on the guitar because I can't get those voicings on the guitar. You know they're very clustery kind of voicings. I did listen to that album. Now were you playing the guitar on that album? No, I wasn't playing on because right. uh, I didn't. I didn't play that on that one. I played it uh, a little bit on the on my first Mars record. You know, because this is many many years ago. That was the Blue Note era, which was in the next decade. You know, and uh, no, I didn't. I didn't play it on that. But I did compose the song on that on the guitar. Today's podcast is sponsored by Education Through Music Los Angeles. ETMLA partners with under-resourced schools to provide music as a core subject for all children and utilizes music education as a catalyst to improve academic achievement, motivation for school, and self-confidence. ETMLA believes that every child deserves access to high-quality music education taught by qualified and well-trained music teachers. Music can support learning in other key subjects, including math, science, and language arts. ETMLA was founded by their executive director, Victoria Lanier. She has incredible experience in music education, and she's a brilliant violin teacher. We know these folks. We know this organization. They're great people, and they're a 5013C nonprofit. So for people out there who are in a position to donate, a position to give back, we hope you all consider our favorite music education program, Education Through Music Los Angeles. You can find them at etmla.org. Now, you also founded your own recording studio for a time in mm-hmm. the early 80s, yeah? Tell us a little b- about that. I had a, 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 I collaborated with uh, three other musicians, uh, you know, because we were all frustrated with the the inability to afford to record ourselves. We're all kind of artists that had original tunes and bands and things like that. And it was just, at that time, it was just really expensive to record. I mean, you know, but especially by today's standards, you know, um, you know, so we actually, um, we banded together and, and formed a thing called Composers Recording Studio. And it was, a, it was an old warehouse by, uh, that was owned by Jimmy Robinson, who was one of the, his, his father actually owned this warehouse, you know. And, uh, you know, we bought, we put our money together and we bought, you know, um, you know, a Tascam recorder. I think it was a 16-track recorder. And uh, we actually bought a piano. And, uh, in fact, that's where I recorded the, my second record, which was called Friends. That was mm. the one with uh, Ellis Marcellus and uh, Rick Margit. So we actually recorded that one at Composer's Recording Studio. So I owned that for about 10 years. And, it, you know, it you know, you can imagine it was like we did, you know, it, 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 it wasn't a real money maker. You know, I, I, we did a lot of projects there. I think we actually did Harry Connick Jr.'s first record there when he was like 16. Or something. Oh, <laughs> wow. I don't know if it was ever released, but but 
uh, there was a lot of music that was that was that was done at that studio, you know, but it wasn't a a real profitable uh, venture in terms of in terms of monetary issues, you know. Tell us a little more about your relationship with Ellis and how how you two came to meet, and he eventually brought you on at at University of New Orleans. Right, right. Well, we met uh, in the early in the early '80s. That was actually uh, you know around the time when I did um, my first record. Um, I can't. The dates are escaping me now, but. There was there was there was always like one prominent jazz club in New Orleans, a contemporary jazz club at any one time. The first one was called Lou and Charlie's. That's where I actually played my first uh, first jazz gig, and that's the first time I saw Ellis. You know, I didn't really know him. I was just happened to see him and you know appreciate his playing. And I saw a lot of the early jazz musicians like James Black. I played with him there or whatever. But after Lou and Charlie's kind of came to an end, the next cl- club was called Tyler's. Beer Garden on Magazine Street, and uh, the owner, Fred Laredo, uh, well, I was playing there a lot, like, as part of a house band. We were playing with people like Dave Liebman and, and uh, 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 Nat Adderley, and uh, there was a lot of bands, you know, people that came through, and they, they were kind of using us as, uh, like, Johnny Vodakovich and James Singleton, which sort of was uh, the core Astral Project band or whatever. But anyway, the owner, uh, Fred Laredo, I think I think Ellis was playing there maybe solo, like on Monday nights or whatever. And he got the brilliant idea that he should put Ellis and I together as a duet. And uh, it was funny because um, neither one of us thought it would work. You know, <laughs> I was just thinking, yeah, guitar and piano, man, it's like putting oil and water together or whatever, you know. But, you know, we... we uh, you know, we did the gig and, you know, we were of like minds. We like the same tunes. And uh, it just happened to work out really good because um, I was playing seven string, of course, because of my bass playing sensibilities. I was able to play bass for him and cop, you know, at the same time with while well, he, he played and he would kick bass lines when I, I played, you know. So it worked out really good. And he has a real great sense of uh, counterpoint. You know, we do like like a lot of counterpoint type of interactions and stuff like that when we played tunes you know and um incidentally on that on that uh, my friend i don't know if you know phil degree but he's a really great uh, solo guitar player f- from new orleans you know he's the one i was saying that was very influenced by lenny bro and he plays these really exotic guitars and stuff but phil used to bring his state-of-the-art cassette recorder <laughs> and record ellis and i and he just sent me, like I said, like just recently, just sent me some tracks from that. And it was like, whoa, man, that's like, I mean, Ellis sounded just, I mean, he's, he, he just, he was probably at his, his peak, you know, in terms of his playing, you know, and, um, and me too. I mean, I think it was right around the time when I started really getting serious about recording and, and, um, I was really uh, blown away by these things. Now I'm not sure if Phil's gonna we're gonna do with those, you know, but at least he preserved them for posterity, you know. And I was playing the the Gretsch seven string at the time, you know, and I had a I had an old amp uh, called a, a a Benson amp. It was made by Ronnie Benson. You probably know. I think he was a West Coast guy that, that uh, Howard Roberts designed this amp, and it was very innovative for the for the time. But it was a tube amplifier, and it had. Uh, had these little modules you could plug in the back to change the tone, you know, algorithms of the amp. It was very, it was very uh, innovative for the time, you know. But that was my amp for many, many years, you know. But yeah, that's, so that's how Ellis and I got. We were playing, you know, probably three years like duet, like maybe like two nights a week at Tyler. So we, you know, learned a lot of tunes. We were playing together a lot, 
And then, uh, <clears throat> yeah, when, then when Ellis, um, many years later, I guess, you know, um, when he, the, he actually went to Virginia for a while. He got tired of New Orleans and went to the University of Virginia. And then the, this uh, Greg O'Brien, who was the chancellor of the University of New Orleans, f- found a way to get him back to New Orleans and start a jazz, you know, the jazz or enhance the jazz program at the University of New Orleans, <clears throat> which had already been sort of going on a limited basis with um, a guy named Charlie Blanc, uh, Dr. Blanc. So that was eight, 1989. Mm-hmm. And then I guess he needed somebody to deal with the guitar player. So he asked me to come on at 19, in 1989. And then uh, I've been there ever since. I've been to 32 years. <laughs> Yeah, man. yeah. Just a big shout out to memory of Ellis Marsalis, who was yeah, absolutely. prolific yeah, and was, you know, was, you know, unbelievable influence on so many people, including myself. Tell us a little bit about um, signing to Blue Note Records in the early '90s and what that was like, and how you feel making albums today might be different than you know late '80s and the '90s. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that that was you know again back then you know it's like. You had to be because of the, the costs of, of recording on a high level, and also in, in, in terms of the, the the production of the record, the distribution. That was always the big word. How you're going to get distribution? Blah blah blah. Whatever. You really needed to be signed by, you know, a label. You know, that, that would that would absorb a lot of those costs. You know, so the label had to believe in you or whatever. But um the way my my inroads into blue note was because i was playing with um i did a record called friends because i was playing with a bunch of people in new orleans and in in particular this one of course ellis but in particular this saxophone player who moved to new orleans from detroit his name was uh, uh rick margitza and you know he's like one of the top saxophone players in the world you know and he moved to new orleans he lived in my house for you know uh, a while, but we were playing a lot together, and then he moved back to New York, and uh, he started to get recognized by people in New York. He actually played with Miles Davis mm-hmm. for a sh- short period of time, and so he got signed by Blue Note Records. And I was doing a lot of gigs with him, like the Mount Fuji Jazz Festival and things like that, you know. And uh, and actually, that's that's um, that's how I got sort of discovered by uh, Bruce Lundvall was uh, seeing me play at the Mount Fuji Jazz Festival. And uh, he really liked my playing. And I remember just, it was some kind of little jam session or something, you know, with I think Winton was playing and I was playing and a bunch of other people just kind of a throw together jam session on stage. And then as I walked down, he says, uh, let's make a record. <laughs> and that was like, <laughs> and then I walked a couple of steps further. And then, and then this guy, Eric Crespin, who was a manager, says, you need a manager. <laughs> So it was like, you know, I took two two more steps. I, I got a you know record deal, and then two more steps, and got a manager. You know, right? And uh, which was good to get the manager because it, it literally took almost a year and a half, I think, before I actually signed the contract. That's how, that's how long it took with negotiations and just you know just bureaucratic stuff or whatever. But. Um, yeah, it was really good because uh, it put it put my name on a higher level than I could ever have, uh, you know, in terms of marketing, you know, in terms of getting, you know, reviews, in terms of getting the record out there, in terms of funding the record itself. I mean, you know, even though the budgets were n- not great, but, you know, like a $20,000 budget at that time was like probably like, a, a, you know, a sixty or $70,000 budget today or whatever. So um, I was grateful to have that opportunity and... Um, I did two records for them, and then uh, you know that's that's uh, it, it helped propel my name at least to a higher, somewhat of a higher level. 
I listened to to what it was, which was your '94, mm-hmm. your first Blue Note album. It's mm-hmm. it's burning, and and I really nice. love all all the added textures you added, whether it was like percussion sections yeah. or or like right. synthesizers. But you were still keeping like clear traditional sound <laughs> piercing right. through that. Tell us a little bit about making that album, because I know I saw you quoted that it was a big production, but you had to do it pretty quickly. Yeah, you know, uh, and, and I was playing with different people. I was playing also doing with some Latin bands in New Orleans. There was a band called Caliente, and we had a we also formed a trio with a Cuban percussionist named Hector Gallardo and James Singleton. It was called Los Tres Amigos. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was I was doing that kind of thing too, um, and I, I was so I was very much. Uh, uh, into the Latin sound, you know, the Afro-Cuban sound, things like that. But yeah, I, I and because because of my electronic sensibilities, you know, I was very much into the, the, the latest cutting-edge sounds, you know, and things like that. And I wanted to incorporate that into the record, but it was a limited budget. And it was funny because I had I, I had read a um, an article that it was like an interview with Scott Henderson at the, you know, like maybe a year before or whatever. And he was talking about how he would use at that time, you could have a, you could have like sequencers, like, you know, that was like the early days of sequencers and you could sequence your digital sounds, soundscapes and things like that or whatever. And there was a way to synchronize that with the studio. So you weren't using like, you know, hundred dollar an hour studio to, to like try to put all your, your digital stuff together, whatever. And it was, a, there was a sync track, which sounded like, you know, just a weird, you know, digital signal that just went on one track and that way it would, it would synchronize with everything. So I thought that was a really cool idea. So I started trying to like synchronize, you know, make my sounds and stuff like that, that I would bring it to the studio. And, uh, and I, that way everything, all that stuff's taken care of. And all I have to do is like play the guitar and, and, or you could get the other guys to play their instruments and stuff like that. But we would, we would do it. Uh, so it, it sounded like a much more produced record than we had the budget for. You know, and um, it's a, it's yeah, a I mean, you know, we definitely we're running out of money at the end there for sure. You know, we're just really rushing through some of the mixes and things like that. You know, but luckily we got it done. You know, <laughs> definitely a worthy album to give a listen to. That's what it was. Oh, it's really Thank burning you. album. And I, I've also heard some of some of these things also on your Nova Nola album that you did mm-hmm. with, with your um, your children, Sasha. Kids. And Martin. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Thanks. And. It's just really nice, tasteful, added synth work for for lack yeah, yeah, of a better yeah, yeah. word. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's funny because I use this. Uh, I use this uh, really great. Uh, he's actually he was just one of our students at the University of New Orleans, uh, James Westfall on vibraphones. Really great vibraphone player on that record. But I took uh, one of the songs. I, I was you know messing around with the uh, the rolling guitar synthesizer, and I got this. You know, it was really hard to make the touch feel right, you know, and I found this vibraphone sound that I worked with and, and tried to get it to work pretty good. And I took a solo at the end of one of those tracks where, I, where it sounds like the vibes and the guitar playing together, but it's just me. <laughs> okay. I, yes. And I, 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 I played that for this. James and I said, what? You know, because <laughs> it, like, it sounds like we're playing, you know, in unison because it's, it's vibes and guitar, you know. Is it okay if we uh, feature one of your songs here? Absolutely, I'm, I'm so I'm so uh, I'm, I'm I'm so honored that you listened to all my stuff, or at least some of it, anyway. <laughs> really burning, man. So, Thank you, man. so this song is three for James from the album Things I Like in 2003, uh-huh. and I just want right. to I'm rolling it in a, a little before your solo because, man, your mm-hmm. comping is really really astounding. 
how clear ah, and uh, it's it's really inspiring. Ah, so here is three for James. Some memories, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a great, great saxophone player, Rex Gregory, who lives on on the West Coast now. I think he might live up in Washington or something. I'm not sure where he is, but he was a University of New Orleans student. But really, really outstanding saxophone player. Not an easy tune to play on. <laughs> yeah, Steve, it's John here, and, and hey John. man, yeah, so so great to hear hear you right there. Um, Man, your comping sounds incredible, and mm-hmm. I love how even your chords sound. And it's funny, I hear that in Eshte's playing, and definitely with Lenny, bro. Um, it's that sound. It's 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 very like the attack is very consistent, and it's something mm-hmm. that I, being an archtop guy, mainly myself, I always struggle because the archtop kind of has a natural like kind of um, punch. Mm-hmm. In that lower right, end, right, right, the high right. end can sound a little thin as you get up the neck sometimes. And right, man, right, right. It's so great to hear you comp like that. Do you feel yeah. like a lot of that comping was developed by playing a lot of solo stuff, or, or actually was that a sound through Lenny and that that you wanted to develop yeah. ensemble setting? I think it was definitely through Lenny, and you know, through Lenny, you know, I, I got a chance to play with Lenny Bro twice, and the first time was when I was in my 
early 20s. It was before I even recorded, you know, whatever. And and that's when, you know, I, you know, I saw him playing with a thumb pick. But he was using like a regular Nashville type of thumb pick. And, and so that, I was intrigued by that. I was also intrigued by the evenness of his playing and, and it just it just a pianistic approach. You know, he was very interested. He was very influenced by Bill Evans and uh, also McCoy Tyner. Yep. And um, so I, I started, I, I couldn't use a Nashville thumb pick. So I started making my own picks. You know, this is, this is one of them right here, which is, uh, it's called, I don't see if you can see it, but it's, uh, I call it a switch pick. Because what I do is I, I um, you know, I can, I can play with all five fingers. So a lot of times when I'm playing chords, I'm using all five fingers, you know, um, even the little finger, you know, but um and then what I do is I just slip, I slip the, the pick down like this, and then I can use it like a regular flat pick. So I call, that's why I call it a, a switch pick, you know. And uh, don't ask me if I, if I marketed each. I, I, I patented it a lot, you know, you know, ideas, but it's like uh, I never I never got into actually like marketing them on a on a on a large le, le, you know level or whatever. I figured nobody else would probably want to use it other than me. Yeah, well, that, that's a that D'Andrea Proplex man. Like we are, where mm-hmm. Harry and I studied with Joe DiOrio. That was his favorite yeah. pick, and Joe like went through yeah. the picks. You know, right, 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 right. Yeah, well, that's one of them. I have man hundreds of them in all. Yeah. Yeah. designs and different materials and things like that but yeah that there's something about that 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 material it seems to be really mm-hmm. really i usually like to use a very thick pick in fact i was using this one lately which is one i used i, I put two two of those um i can't remember the white pick name or whatever i had to put two of them together to make a, a three millimeter pick <laughs> and i drilled a hole through it so i could hold it better you know but yeah. um yeah, yeah, but I think that a lot of that's some Lenny, bro. I learned a lot. My, my voicing some Lenny, um, you know, the way he would, he, you know, the way he would voice things, you know, because on guitar, it's very, it's very, um, uh, you know, it's like, you know, I don't know if you can see this or not, but, you know, it's like Lenny would, uh, <laughs> oh, uh, um, You know, it's like, you know, if you have if you have a chord like here, like B major seven here, you might play it like a normal B major seven, or you might play it like this here. But when Lenny would get up here, like if you have a melody up here, he would voice the chord with these three strings. So I'm actually skipping these two strings right here, and I'm playing I'm playing the top note. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like you know, it's 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 a it's much more of a pianistic approach. You know, it's based upon, you know. Uh, where the bass player might be, you know, hypothetically putting his note, you know, and structuring the chord accordingly. Because, you know, a lot of times in guitar, we just sort of like learn a chord voicing, we just move it around the neck wherever, you know what I mean? But certain voicings just don't sound right in certain, in, in, in certain ranges, you know. So I learned a lot of that by from Lenny. Uh, and I didn't know why it worked, but then, you know, as I started, you know, teaching theory and stuff like that, I got a little more into the mechanics of the overtone series and things like that. But but uh, yeah, so a lot of that is from Lenny Lenny Bro, and then uh, just just sort of building on his sensibilities in terms of uh, you know evenness, uh, you know, playing guitar evenly. Because um, I do, I like I like the um, the acoustic jazz sound. You know, I have I have large top guitars. This one is is one a student built for me, but the one of my favorite ones uh, is was built by. Uh, 
Jimmy Foster, a really great guitar luthier. Um, and um, it's got more of a traditional kind of sound, but it has to do with your touch, you know, and how you play it. And um, so, and it has to do with, I think, with your left hand strength too. I think a lot of it comes from, from you know, no matter what anybody tells you, it's the, <laughs> the left hand is, 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 is the key, not the right hand, you know. And I always have to remind myself when I feel like my chops are not happening, it's because my left hand is feeling weak, you know. But you have to be careful because I, you know, I, I, I played a lot that way, you know, very legato and using a lot of strength with my, my left hand. And, you know, I ran into some, definitely ran into some, you know, uh, tendonitis issues and things like that. So you got to be very careful about it. But, um, but that's the, I, I like the, 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 the traditional guitar sound, but I like also the, the legato-ness of it, you know? Yeah. And, and it's, it's a unique sound. Other guitar players, I think are like Ed Bickert and Cal yeah. Collins, actually. I think Cal Collins had that mm-hmm. sound. His Gretsch, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, those guys too. Yeah. Man, well, and you know, just to shift gears, the the other question I had before passing it over to my my buddy Perry here, um, I first learned about you by reading a segment in Downbeat, maybe God, twenty years ago when I was in <clears throat> about Astral Project. Oh yeah, and I saw that picture of you playing that instrument with that cool headstock, mm-hmm. and this is just with the advent of the internet, two thousand one, two thousand. So I that was my only connection to you, but I there was a recording I heard of you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, my teacher in Portland, Oregon, Dan Balmer, had a recording of, you, okay. of your stuff. Wow. And um, man, you know that group is is really fantastic, and I really recommend our listeners go check out Astral Project. And you guys mm-hmm. have been around for for thirty some odd years, and you mm-hmm. know, like Will and Perry and I, I mean, the, the New West Guitar Group has been around for sixteen, and wow. it seems to be kind of rarer these days that the younger generation of jazz musician commits to a project. It's like literally for the long haul for decades and decades. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and what's amazing about it is over the years, you, you get a library of recordings and arrangements and, and all the concerts that we do together. And something we're always thinking about in New West about our next project is what we've done before. Like, if, well, we haven't done an acoustic thing in a while. Let's do something mm-hmm. more acoustic, or maybe we should add a vocalist. Is that mm-hmm. how you guys approach Astral Project in terms of wh- what you think of next? Again, you guys also live in the same city, correct? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've been around a long time, and uh, I'm I'm actually the junior member in the band. I've only been in with, with for thirty years, you know, because it, it, I had my own band at the time called Mars, and uh-huh. I was, that was my first record. I recorded with Dave Lieben, and of course, before that, foreplay with Emily Rambler, whatever. But yeah, I tell people that the yeah, Astro Project's kind of like the Rolling Stones of jazz in New Orleans, you know? right? Yeah, but. Um, I, when I compose what I've been in, it, I'm, I'm always trying to think in terms of the players, you know, and especially the rhythm section, because Johnny Vodakovich is probably the most quintessentially New Orleans drummers you, you have, you know. So we, 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 we do an eclectic mix of music, uh, lots of different styles, but it always seems to be rooted in that New Orleans rhythm. And, um, and rather than trying to break completely away from that, I feel like we use that as our as our strength, you know, and um, in fact, we're playing, I wrote a new tune, we're playing tonight, and this is the first time actually we're playing tonight after a year and a half, it's just, I'm kind of, you know, <laughs> I'm really psyched about it, you know, because it's like, wow, we haven't played together. We actually had a rehearsal yesterday, I couldn't believe it, you know, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know we're pretty stoked to get to play in August. Um, Perry's going to fly out here to the West Coast. And, oh, cool. And we haven't had a gig since January of 2020. So wow. that, that's, I think, the longest stretch we've definitely gone without. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. We all we all bring tunes to the to the table, especially myself and Tony Tony DeGrotti, who's the founder of the Astro Project, and he writes uh, his music, and I write my music, and uh, but it always seems to work. The biggest challenge for me, that band actually started with a, a, a with as a quintet with a pianist named David Korkanowski, a really great piano player from New Orleans, and for reasons that we don't have to go into, it, it the band became a, a, a a quartet mm-hmm. and um which was kind of strange for me because i wrote a lot of music based upon the fact that we had a piano uh and then when i had to switch to being the piano and then and i had to like cover all these rules that was a real challenge for me and uh even though i really like as a guitar player i like not playing with a piano player i like to be able to comp for myself and i like to be able to uh comp for other people um i think it's it's a it's a it's a different uh dynamic that you would have uh, you know that you might have with a piano player or whatever um mm-hmm. i feel like uh uh that that was a big challenge for me to try to relearn some of the tunes we had been playing but i had to now cover and make them sound full and make them sound you know the way they did before when we had a piano player and now you know when i write new songs i write them with the idea that there is no piano player and we write them with the idea that uh, it's going to work and it's going to sound great with the instrumentation we have you know right. but it's always with that it's always with that sort of backdrop that we're in new orleans band and we have that street beat kind of thing happening with johnny and james and uh they're all very creative musicians and we you know we start from that core but it can really go lots of different places and you know the compositions always sort of they develop you know you you, you, you play the tunes so we always try before we record we try to like learn a new material and let them evolve on the bandstand before we uh because they they change quite a bit over time you know of course of course that flexibility that's part of the fun of having a band is that people can kind of bring their own thing to the table and yeah everything. absolutely yeah well what a delight to have you again i'm going to pass it to my buddy perry now and thanks again steve i hope we get to connect all right Jen. never yeah. been to new orleans i want to go so all right one of these days yeah, yeah 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 okay sounds great yeah man what's happening steve hey uh, perry Great to meet you virtually, and uh, I've been yeah. playing for some time. Thank you for taking some time to be on our podcast. And yeah, uh, a couple of things I wanted to ask you. Um, I think I'll jump right into a question about New Orleans, since you guys were getting into that with Astral Project. And mm-hmm. I'm always really interested to ask players that are in different scenes just a little bit about their particular scene and kind of what sets it apart and how it compares to other places. And you know, we all know. New Orleans is a very unique place for music, mm-hmm. uh, birthplace of jazz. And I would love to just give you a chance to educate us and our listeners on how it kind of sets apart from other scenes um, and how it compares and your experiences uh, in other places like Chicago or LA or New yeah. York. What really yeah. sets New Orleans apart? Yeah, well, I've never lived in Chicago. I, I spent quite a bit of time in New York when during the Blue Note years and an apartment up there and stuff, you know. But um, yeah, I feel like New Orleans um, is probably is, as a young musician is probably like one of the best places to actually learn your craft and learn learn how to play because most of the most of us young students all have gigs. Or, you know, I'm talking like pre COVID now, or whatever. You know, and then things are starting to slowly come back, but. It was one of the it was one of the few places where you could actually play gigs, you know, and and you know make a little money here and there, or whatever. But like in New York, you know, you'd be competing with the, the top notch guys for little fifty dollar gigs and stuff like that, you know. 
But, you know, New Orleans was always, what was the downside of New Orleans is there was not a, a solid business structure here at all. There were no recording labels. There was no, there was no managers to, to, to really take the musician's music to a different level and things like that. So you see a lot of, a lot of these musicians were leaving and going to New York, places like where you had like this, this strong, you know, business infrastructure, you know, I mean, you know, I'm talking about like, you know, you know, the, the Marcellus and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, Nick Payton moved up there for a while and, you know, all these, these guys that were like really in, in, in great musicians. It seemed like at some point, you know, and I'm talking like, you know, 20 years ago, whatever, they all felt like they had to leave New Orleans to, in order to like take their career to a, to a higher level. But in terms of the vibe of New Orleans, I, I, I really feel like it's probably the same as it was when jazz was being created. You know, it's, it's a very, it's, it's, it's a, it's a diverse, uh, uh, mix of, uh, ethnicities and, uh, confluences and people playing together and, and learning music and, um, you know, learning new things on different levels and stuff like that. And I feel like that's, that vibe is still here. It's just, we're just, you know, you know, hundred, hundred years later or whatever. But, um, so I think, like I say, I think it's, I think it's one of the best places to learn music. It's not, it's not one of the best places to take your career to a high, higher level in terms of business or in terms of recognition, in terms of like getting worldwide exposure and stuff like that. But it's, it's, it's a very unique place, you know, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Much of what you were saying uh, reminded me a little bit of how I felt when I lived in LA. I moved there 20 years ago. Uh, that's mm-hmm. where John and I met. And uh, John, you'd probably agree, but there was sort of this um, feeling among a lot of young jazz musicians that like, after you got to a certain point, after you got good enough, you would try to move to New York. I mean, we saw so many people do this. Yeah. I ended up being one of them, right? Like you feel like you just kind of got to get out of the local scene. But what you were saying, Steve, about just being in a scene where you can work and gain experience and make mm-hmm. money, that was LA too. So I think yeah, in a lot, yeah, yeah. lot of ways, LA and New Orleans have that in common for younger people. Right. So, yeah, that's that's funny you said that because I remember being at Berkeley College of Music and that was the big thing. Like after you left Berkeley, I wish you'd been going to New York, you know? And I decided, no, I'm going to go back to New Orleans. <laughs> So you that. I'm not going to New York, you know, and I'm glad I did because, because, you know, there weren't that many mm, at the time, you know, I, you know, there weren't that many like mm, guitar players I would consider to be like on a really, on a really high level. So it, 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 and I, it gave me a, an opportunity to play with people I would never play with like Dave Liebman or, you know, uh, uh, Randy Brecker or, you know, uh, you know, people who are coming through town and I was or Ellis Marcellus, you know, and all, you know, it's, it's so many people I got a chance to play with just because I was sort of good at what I was doing. And I was probably one of the only guitar players doing it, you know, right. and um, it gave me a chance to sort of develop in, in a way that was isolated from what was happening in New York, you know, in the way, you know, because guys in New York, they have a certain way of playing, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a, uh, it's a, you know, uh, it's different than it was in New Orleans. New Orleans is much more rhythmic-oriented, uh, much more, you know, steeped in the blues and things like that, and um, a little bit more Caribbean rhythms and things like that. So it gave me, I think, a chance to sort of, like, develop, not 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 intentionally, but just because I had no other influences in terms of that other than just the people I was playing with in New Orleans to sort of develop my, my playing style, you know, that sort of 
fit with the, the, the environment. And do you find it to be like a supportive scene that's full of a lot of camaraderie in New Orleans? Or is it more of like, you know, New York is a huge scene, so I hate to generalize yeah. a lot of support out here. But there's also a lot of, you know, opportunistic kind of yeah. uh, dealings. Let's just put it Yeah, that. yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, what, that's that, one of the things that I, was, I didn't like about New York. Uh, I think things change over the years, though. You know what I mean? I think that's it's probably a lot more like that, you know, at the time when I was in New York, yeah, it was much more like a, a cutthroat, you know, competition kind of thing, which, you know, has its benefits. I guess it makes you really strong at whatever you do, but then you kind of subtle lose a little connection, I think, with reality and life. And <laughs> what, you know, is that the most important thing I want to do or whatever? But um, um, yeah, New Orleans, is, New Orleans is a little more, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like you have an opportunity maybe just to do your own thing here. Um, you won't make tons of money you're doing. I think New Orleans, because it's a very touristy oriented kind of town that a lot of the music that people are playing on more is more, you know, it's very entertainment centered. You know, I mean, that's one of the things about the, the, the jazz. I feel like, uh, especially the older jazz musicians knew um, is that they play music as entertainment. You know, people come to see the music and see what you look like and how you play, how you, how you act on stage and, and not just purely the actual playing of the notes and things like that or whatever, you know? So New Orleans, I think it's a little bit more like that because of, because it's a more of a tourist oriented kind of town. You start playing to the crowd a little more, Yeah, but you know, you can definitely, you can definitely do um, some experimental things and do your own thing here. You know, um, it, it just doesn't have the, 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 the higher appeal that you would have for, you know, for, you know, broad general audience or whatever. I think that's a good message. Um, for a lot of musicians in any kind of scene to understand, which is that people come to listen to you to experience what you're doing in totality. Mm-hmm. You know, like right. they want to see what you look like. They want to check out your vibe. It's not just about, you know, whether you made the changes on that tune or something, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you were, yeah, mentioned- I think, you know, at certain levels, you know, yeah. People come to see music and you know, how you present yourself is, is part of the whole package that people want to see. On the other hand, if you're so good, you know, I remember seeing, I was in, I think it was in Wales, and I, was, I remember going to a con, you know, we were playing there, and I went to see Brad Meldow play, and, uh, you know, this concert hall, the beautiful little concert hall, and he walks out, and he looks like the most ordinary guy, like he just went to sh- probably shops at Walmart or something like that, <laughs> walks out, but then he gets behind the piano, and everyone's just completely me- mesmerized, you know what I mean? And so at that level, it doesn't even matter anymore, you know, but it's good, but it's like, yeah, people come to look Brad, at music too. Brad Meldow? I've heard of that guy. I've heard he's okay. Yeah, yeah, he's okay. <laughs> Not a great dresser, but he's okay. <laughs> um, you know, you were also saying, you know, speaking about like what's really important, you know, and I, it got me thinking a little bit about when you know you were talking earlier about, um, you know, having this guitar teacher, uh, Hank Mackey, who, who taught everybody kind of in your local area, right? Yeah. And, teachers that i had people like bruce foreman or tony k mm-hmm. yeah so many people in a particular area of california mm-hmm. and i was going to just ask at this point for you you know you're quite an accomplished player you're the chair of the jazz studies at the university of new orleans like how does the reward from teaching and mentoring people compare to the reward of getting out and playing and recording and sort of putting your art out how does that 
Well, yeah, the old the older I get, man, it astounds me, man. People will come up to me, and I was playing at this club a couple of nights ago, a restaurant, actually. We're doing a Brazilian thing, or whatever. This guy came up to me and said, man, I was in your guitar ensemble in 1992. <laughs> I didn't even recognize the guy, but it's just amazing to see all the people who you touched at some point, you know, and, and it started, it started to like ring home to me more, I, I guess, as I get older, you know, I'm sure, you know, like Ellis Marcellus, I mean, he, you know, he, he influenced so many people. It's just completely yeah. obvious, you know, but, but, uh, you know, when I think about like, you know, like Davey Mooney was one of my students and he's a, the head of, you know, with the, or Ted Ludwig, you know, he's a yeah. really great guitar player and Jesse Lewis and, you oh, know, but then there's all the other, the other guys that, you know, sort of recognize me as being part of their teaching, like Brian Blade, you know, who, you know, what do I have to do with Brian Blade? But he used to be in one of my ensembles when I was teaching at Loyola, you know, decades ago or whatever, you know, but, um, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, it, it, it really makes you, it gives you a, a, a good feeling, even though I can't feel like I can take credit for just, I mean, those guys were all going to be great no matter what, but it's just nice to, to, to feel like you had some kind of small, role and trying to steer people in a certain direction you're talking about jesse lewis the guitarist from Endless, yeah right yeah he's a good buddy of mine uh, okay he's a great player man you know composer yeah yeah tell him hello i know that um yeah he's in new york now i think you know uh-huh. we had him we had him at uno uh actually he, he had this duet with this uh, bass player i can't think of the guy's name but they were doing some interesting stuff where they recorded out in some the grand canyon or something like that or whatever that, but that band is called endless field endless field i always joke with him i say it's endless fields and he's like no it's endless, endless field, field. and yeah ike Sturm, who's fred Sturm's, you may know fred Sturm's uh-huh. son. okay yeah, they, they have a cool group we're yeah. trying to get them on our podcast so that will happen yeah 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 yeah, yeah. uh anyway cool. i'm gonna pass it back to will i think he's got some more yeah. new- as we wrap this up all right thanks steve i also just want to ask a little bit about uh the the range of your seven strings because you've got oh some yeah. extended range going on right yeah well the first guitar you know it's like when i outgrew the van epps uh, seven string you know which was my original guitar that i used for many many years uh you couldn't buy a seven string guitar at that time that was the only one i know that was ever made you know so i came up with the idea that i should go to a luthier and have something built for me and i went to one of the best this guy is jimmy foster he's a really great solo guitar player too ronnie eshtim knows him mm-hmm. uh he's since passed away but but um yeah, that was way back in that was before oh, when did i have that guitar built well, anyway, I went to him with the idea, and I, and I was thinking, that, well, if I'm going to have a guitar built, I want to have it built the way I want it to be built. <laughs> I mean, and because I was so in tune with the um, the bass, I decided to make it a much longer neck. Mm-hmm. And I don't have that guitar sitting here right now, but the original one actually went down a perfect fourth. You know, so so the so the low east the low string, the seventh string, which would normally be an A with a Van Epps tuning, was actually a low E, but the same E is on a bass. And the reason I was doing that is because I was playing a lot with uh, Rick Margitza, um, and he was very much into like uh, Michael Brecker and doing these symmetrical ideas and things like that or whatever. And I was really, I was kind of practicing things like that. And I was realizing it's so easy to do this on the guitar doing going this way, but then 
I run out of room. <laughs> so I made the neck go lower, you know? And, uh, so that was my guitar, uh, you know, for, for the, uh, the, what it was record. Um, was it on was it direct, direct access? I can't remember now. Uh, but yeah, that guitar was, uh, and Jimmy, it was a really traditional luthier and he called it the rocket ship, you know, <laughs> it was, it was a really kind of an unusual guitar, you know, but it's funny because I listened back to my old records and it's like, a lot of people just think that that's like one of my better sounding guitars, you know. And um, did you I still play have that it. I just have on for Joe? Yeah, for Joe. That was that was the next iteration. I went to another uh, guitar builder, uh, and and that one actually started with a, the same length of, of neck, and that was built by uh, Salvador Giardina. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that one had more of an acoustic body to it, but that's the one I used on the Four Joe record. And then, you know, I felt like I felt like the long neck thing was be- becoming just bothersome, you know, and I so I, I kind of reduced it to being like two frets extra. So all the guitars I have now are like, you know, they, they I have a low D and a low G. So it's like it's like taking the normal guitar and tuning it down a, a whole step or whatever. So they're not quite as long, you know, with the neck being like really long, you know. It's so it, it but but uh, I've gotten used to that and I've gotten used to the, uh, the the open strings the way they are now, you know. But I do like a long neck, but I think I think it evolved originally because I was uh, so much in tune to the lower lower range of the instrument. You know? It shows, man. And um, I wanted to play a, a song off of For Joe called Tino's Blues. And if my memory serves me, I think we hear a little bit of that that low register. So here is Tino's Blues. <laughs> Steve, so I think I'm better than I thought I was. (laughs) (laughs) 
Man, Steve, what a yeah, pleasure. That's a, that's, that, 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 that song is a good example of me using the, 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 the thumb pick because, you know, that line, Yeah, I, I remember I had a student that said, man, I'm, I, how did you play that that line on Tino's Blues? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm using the, the thumb pick, you know. And then he, he said, oh, I'm going to learn that just using the flat pick. And I don't think he could ever get it to sound the right with, with the flat pick. But, you know, throughout that solo, I'm kind of like switching back and forth with the pick, you know, either doing finger picking or doing the the flat picking, you know, but, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's that, that tone. And that was the, that was the idea. That was a great sound. Man. It, kind of, it kind of reminded me of that early Joe pass kind of woody kind of, kind of sound. And, um, I think I was using the Benson app at that time, mm-hmm. actually, you know, so, you know, when you go in the studio, sometimes it's hit or miss, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, the guitar sound you get, you know, like Joe pass, I mean, you know, is those, you know, yes, I, I think Joe would just, show up and just plug into whatever the amp he had and just play you know what i mean it could be like a terrible this or that amp or whatever and you know who knows you know but you know or use some, some cheap guitar or something like that but um um even if even if you spend a lot of time trying to get your sound together you know when you go into the studio it's like well oh, man this is not the way i thought it was going to sound but that was that was a pleasant surprise to hear that that tone because that's 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 the kind of sound i really like <clears throat> and it's beautiful. Um, Thank you. Where where can the the listeners of this podcast uh, hear your music? Keep in touch with you. See what's next. Yeah, uh, I do have a website. I can't. I can't. You know, steamazakowski I can't say I really keep it up. You know, I I, I probably add more stuff to my Facebook. Uh, you know, recent gigs. Um, all my records that I know have been uploaded to YouTube. So if you just did a search on my name. Mm-hmm. Um, You'll probably get my daughter first, but you know, but because uh, she's got a lot. Of, my son's also a really great uh, bass player, but uh, it, it's got you know. I think I have like like ten or eleven solo CDs out there, you know. So so you can hear stuff on there, you know. Um, and that could probably just be a way of you know poking around on YouTube or whatever, or Google. You can figure out more stuff about me. You know? And be sure to check out Nova Nola, which is a wonderful yeah, project yeah. that Steve has with his daughter Sasha and his son Mark. That's great. Beautiful. How'd you get that right? Did Sasha give it to you? <laughs> no, um, I found it uh, on yeah, on the streaming music cosmos. Wow. Yeah, it's on Spotify. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was great, man. Yeah, I listened yeah. to it yesterday. Thank you. It's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. Um, wow. So, Steve, thank you so much for for making time yeah. for us today, and you know. You know, for being such an innovator, it's it's definitely inspiring hearing hearing the way you just deal with. You have an idea, and you mm-hmm. just make it happen. Whether it's adding three frets or, you know, or creating a keytar. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, Steve, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank and you. And we'll be in touch. And uh, it was it was such a pleasure. Yeah, I hope you can make it to New Orleans sometime. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.